Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our show offers a friendly conversation with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by the Learn It family of companies, including Autism Spectrum Therapies, Trellis Services, and Desert Choice Schools, helping all children succeed in school and life. Now, here is your host, Rob Haupt. Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Autism Talk. I'm your host, Rob Haupt. I am Vice President at Autism Spectrum Therapies, an organization providing services to kids with autism all across the country. Uh, I work with Autism Spectrum Therapies as well as all of the Learned family of companies, including Trellis, Desert Choice Schools. Uh, I'm really excited about today's show. We've got a great guest um, who is here to come back, actually, for almost part two, you could say, of uh, of a show we did right before uh, my daughter was born. Um, today, I am joined by Kristen Jacobson. Um, she is the uh, board chair, president, and executive director of Autism Deserves Equal Coverage Foundation. Um, as part of her 20-year career in healthcare marketing and reimbursement, Kristen has advocated for autism-related causes since 2006. She led a multi-year statewide effort to pass autism insurance reform in California and was a principal drafter of SB 946, which was signed into California law by Governor Jerry Brown in 2011. Subsequent to the passage of SB 946, she was appointed to the Department of Managed Health Care's Autism Advisory Task Force in order to help draft recommendations regarding medical necessity and behavioral health treatment. In 2009, she co-founded Autism Deserves Equal Coverage in order to help families and providers access healthcare treatment through private insurance. And in 2013, she founded Autism Deserves Equal Coverage Foundation as a companion nonprofit organization. Um, Kristen is especially proud of leading the effort that resulted in legislation included in the state budget that set California up to be the first state in the nation to implement new federal guidance about Medicaid autism coverage. So, Kristen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Rob. It's great to be back. I, uh, I'm glad we were able to schedule this so soon. I know we were talking just a couple months ago about uh, Medi-Cal, and, and this was something we wanted to, to get on the books right away um, because licensure, I know, has been a, a big part of your you know, early winter as it's, it's been a big part of mine. Um, you know, the, the place I wanted to start, which I feel like a lot of, parents who are listening are probably going to kind of ask themselves is like, why should they care? Like licensure feels like a, a, an issue for me. Um, but obviously you've been involved in it. You represent parents uh, every day. You know, why, why is this a parent issue? Licensure is a parent issue primarily because the single primary purpose of licensure is consumer protection. Mm-hmm. So the reason that a field is licensed is to protect the individuals who receive the services. So that's why everything is licensed from, you know, a medical doctor who's performing surgery to a plumber who is coming into your home to fix their pipe, your pipes. Um, and the, the entire theme of everything is consumer protection. Mm-hmm. So the reason that a field is regulated by the state is because there are potential risks to the users of the product, or in this case, the patient population, if proper care is not given. So obviously it's very, very important that 
uh, individuals with autism have access to quality care um, for behavioral health treatment. And you're, the population that's served is a very vulnerable population. I mean, you'd certainly argue it, it's significantly more vulnerable than just a homeowner who's having something uh, done on their plumbing. You're talking about a child with a developmental disability who's likely going to be, um, for at least some of the time, one-on-one with uh, an individual therapist. And it's critical both that the, um, you know, that the safety precautions are covered, that the background checks have been done, the fingerprinting has been done, that you know that the, the person is an appropriate person um, to be uh, alone with, an individual with developmental disabilities. And then on the second side, this is incredibly valuable time for the patient. The treatment is critical to be done early. It's more effective when it's done early. So the competence side as well, it's really important that you know that the person who is in your home providing this critical care, meaning someone else isn't, is actually competent to be doing that. So the, the sort of two real reasons that consumers would want licensure or should want licensure mm-hmm. ultimately is for the competence of the person and then the safety of the, the treating therapist. You know, and so I, I hear you say that and, you know, it, it sounds like from your perspective, you want licensure. You're in support of licensure. You see it as a good thing. Um, I agree with that, you know, big picture. I see licensure as a good thing. Like as a BCBA, I'm very excited about being able to say I'm a licensed behavior analyst in the state of California. Um, However, it's not such a slam dunk, great, I want it, you want it, let's go do it. Um, So where do things stand right now? So I think the way I'd answer that is I absolutely support the concept of licensure. I think another thing that licensure can do is raise the standards in the field. Now, I don't want anyone to interpret from what I said about why one would want licensure that there are actually any competency or safety concerns right now. So I do think that um, people should be, be confident that, you know, what was passed in SB 946 and the health and safety code, the autism health insurance uh, reform law, that basically is a quasi-licensure, and the courts have recognized it as such. And it has very specific competency training and requirements for the different levels um, and and also working through the health plans. The health plans all require the fingerprinting um, and the background checks. So I don't want people mm-hmm. to feel that with the absence of licensure, there are safety or quality concerns. Sure. That's a good but point. Where I That's think a really licensure good point. Can, where I think licensure can bring the field is to refine it over time and continually elevate the field because – we have had very successful behavioral health treatment provided in the state of California, primarily to the regional centers and also through um, school districts for, you know, more than 25 years. We were probably the earliest state that had meaningful behavioral health treatment mm-hmm. provided on a sort of statewide basis. And the regional centers and the school districts also have quality and safety um, processes that are in place. But there is a wide variety, and there is not a state license 
board where a family could go and look up an individual therapist. There's a national board where you can go look up a BCBA, but if you're a licensed provider who is working under a different license, then it would be a different place. Um, I mean, frankly, one of the things that I think would be a benefit would be to have everybody who's providing behavioral health treatment be within one place so a consumer has one place to go and that they can also check the technicians uh, and the frontline staff, not just the highest level staff. And right now, most of the um, ability to check a provider is at the high level. I think where the challenge comes in is, and why it's not a slam dunk, is twofold. First of all, the system we have is working quite well, and we have quality behavioral health treatment that's provided. So Mm -hmm. it's not an urgent problem that needs to be fixed. It's a nice-to-have in terms of where we would want the field to go to become more professional. But at the same time, a risk when you license something, if you don't do it carefully, is that you actually preclude people who are currently providing the treatment in a quality manner from the license by not carefully enough formulating what the requirements are and then what the process is. You know, say you're going to raise or change the standards, you have Mm -hmm. to accommodate your current provider pool and not just take a portion of it and leave families without treatment. And so I think that's probably the biggest concern that the parent population has is that the various iterations of licensure bills that have come, particularly that have been put forth by um, the Behavior Analyst Association, uh, the California one or the national one, Mm -hmm. um, are focusing on a subset of behavioral health treatment providers and do not adequately address the current provider population, and then that puts the actual treatment at risk of thousands of children today. So it's not even the theoretical um, risk. It's children today who are being served through the regional center with a very effective, competent system on the whole. It's not to say that there's not a bad apple here or there. There are in all health professions. But on the whole, it's a very competent system. Kids are making great progress. Those kids are transitioning from the regional center to Medi-Cal as the new Medi-Cal benefit is being implemented. The licensing requirements would apply to the providers who provide through Medi-Cal, and they are different than the standards that are applying to the regional center. And the risk of having a substantial number of kids, and there's 9,000 at least kids who are transitioning between February and, say, July of 2016, to have any number of those, let alone a substantial number of kids, be at risk that their providers will no longer meet criteria of the new license is is just a complete non-starter. So... And that's been the biggest challenge with um, with all the opposition that has been voiced toward the licensing bill uh, that, that is currently going through the legislature um, and that other versions um, that have been introduced in the past. You know, I, you covered a lot of things, and I, I kind of want to tackle uh, a, 
all of them. Um, you know, and, and I, you know, I think about this because, you know, as I said, I've been really involved in it and I am agreement with you. Like abstractly, I like the idea of licensure. Um, and I agree that our system has worked for the most part well. Um, you know, one of the things that I've had concerns about is the, you know, you mentioned the regulatory piece, like the, if, if a, family has a complaint, if there's an issue, where do they go? And, you know, as much as I respect the BACB and I've, I've been really happy to be a part of that organization, to be certified, you know, the regulatory piece as it comes to disciplining BCBAs has always, in my opinion, been a little lacking. Um, and I think that has to do with just size, resources, it, it's a few different factors. So I see that as a good thing for what we are going to get in the state, but it feels like they're trying to mimic a set of BACB guidelines, you know, the BCBA, the BCABA, the RBT, and it feels like those guidelines, those, those have always felt to me as if they've been created in a vacuum, not necessarily in a, this is the way the field is actually delivering services every day. And, and I, I wonder, um, are you finding that conflict in, in your interactions with people? Yeah, and you kind of asked two different questions. You asked about the, the systems mm -hmm. and the criteria, and are they being created in a vacuum? And then you also asked about the complaint um, yeah. process. And I, I'll address both of those separately. Okay, cool. I guess I'll start with your second question about being developed in a vacuum. Um, I would... I would tend to agree that that is a concern. That that said, I don't think I actually support the criterion that the BACB has established for the different positions mm -hmm. um, for the most part. Um, however, there are certainly some areas which are definitely lacking. Um, you know, I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that the RBT doesn't have a certain number of competency-based hours. I know that the licensing bill doesn't. I don't know if the RBT does. Um, but, it's more you know, ongoing. I think it's, it's not like it's a prerequisite. It's important to me that there is a minimum requirement for a position, and certainly the continuing education piece and the continuing on-the-job training is important. Mm -hmm. But um, that is a concern in the bill is that the RBT doesn't actually have any specific training requirements. And the regional center has 30 hours a week, or sorry, 30 hours of required training. And I think a lot of organizations do 40 hours. And that's before, you know, a technician could ever be out with a patient. And I think that's critical. Um, one of the reasons that I think that that happens at the BACB and a real significant difference between how they are run and a state licensing board is that, you know, they are a nonprofit and it is run by BCBAs for BCBAs. But the process by which their criteria are developed, and um, you know, it's not transparent, their board and their clinical board does not have either any or certainly not meaningful consumer representation. Yeah. Whereas if you look at a licensing board, license every every licensing board in the state of California is either slightly above 50% public or slightly below 50% public membership. And 
So obviously that is, that's the model that works with licensing boards. So you're talking about, you know, nearly 50% of the members, I think it's one member shy, of the licensing board for surgeons are lay people. And the BACB doesn't actually have that. It's all BCBAs. And I do think in terms of just from bringing it into how is this actually delivered in the world and how is this protecting consumers, because as I started, licensing is about consumer protection. It's not about mm-hmm. building a field or protecting a field. Right. Um, it seems a huge vacancy that there isn't significant consumer representation on the BACB clinical boards. And that is something that we would get in a licensing bill is that, you know, the board is going to reflect all California boards. And at a minimum, it's going to be one member shy of a majority of um, public members, but the state's actually looking at whether they need to shift all their health licensing boards to one member public majority because of some court, a court case in other states that found that it was, um, you know, there were antitrust reasons to not have the field actually being its own regulatory agency. Um, So, you know, the state as a whole is looking at whether the licensing boards need to be more than 50% Mm. public. And then if you look at the BACB, there's no public representation or at least not meaningful. So um, that is something that I think it would help all the requirements and also just the whole process. I mean, I've heard, you know, it's not uncommon for a licensing board to say, we don't, you know, we don't in the end care if there's no clinical psychologist in this region because we don't want an incompetent one. And I would agree, we don't want an incompetent one, but as a consumer, if there is another way to get a competent one, like the way the regional center does it or the way that school districts have done it for 25 years, I'm not willing to put a bar up that says that person somehow can't practice and I'd rather have nobody than somebody who's very competent. So I think there are people that are very competent that are potentially could be excluded, um, and that's why we haven't supported the bill sure. from you know, yeah, we support the concept, but not the specifics right. of the bill. The, well, um, I want to jump in real quick, actually, because I think there's okay. I think there's a, a couple points there that are, are worth us just kind of expanding on. You know, you know, one thing is I know the RBT does have a training requirement. It's not a, um, you know, it's not necessarily a supervised hour requirement, but they do have to go through a forty hour training. Um, but I agree with you. Okay, they do for uh, the RBT, but it's not in the licensing bill. Correct, correct. It's not in the licensing bill. Um, but I agree with you in terms of some of these things for, you know, when we when we look at all of this, and, and, I, and I think the critical point you made within the BACB, and, and I, I wholeheartedly agree, is, um, you know, when I look at the RBT and I look at these things, it feels to me like um, – you talked about the advancement of the field versus the protection of the consumers. And, you know, when I look at the RBT task list, you know, you have as much of an idea as to what's on the test to become an RBT as I do. You know, it's, it is a little bit kind of behind closed doors at the moment um, and, and maybe lacks some of the transparency that, that I think the consumers would probably want. Um, but it feels to be more about the science of, of ABA 
And I know one of my personal preferences would be these people are going to be in someone's home every day. I, I'd like to make sure that there's a good amount of ethical requirements and protections in place because, you know, I, I hire people on a daily basis. And one of my biggest concerns is how is this person going to act when their supervisor isn't there, when it's just mom, kid, and them? And, you know, that's a, that's a lot of responsibility, and it takes a lot of just, I think, awareness and maturity to play a role like that. Um, and to me, and, and, I, and correct me if you disagree, but, like, I feel like that's where some of this consumer protection could be added when we look at a licensure on a um, – when we look at it from, again, a more of an abstract what it could be perspective. Yeah, no, I think the ethics is really important. And, I mean, this is a, an un – this is not a field that has a lot of parallels in regular medicine, which I think oh. is why in general, you know, the field, both the payers, the consumers and the providers are struggling with what's the right licensing scheme yeah. because there are not a lot, if any fields where such relatively low level allied health professionals are providing such a large portion of care without actual supervision. And it's necessary because of the intensity of the intervention, and it's also shown to be effective. Um, that said, the ethics are critical. The other piece that I think is important in a licensure bill that I don't think has made its way into this one is, regardless of who is providing the majority of the direct hours, the care is being overseen and needs to be directed by and basically quality controlled by the BCBA or the licensed supervisor that is, you know, in the current bill, the qualified autism service provider. Mm -hmm. And while you as a BCBA need to know that the staff or the, you know, technician has past ethical and competency training, ultimately, the buck stops with you, the supervisor. Yeah. And I think there needs to be something very clear saying that, you know, the person who is doing the supervising ultimately is responsible for the competence, the training, and the quality of the work that's provided by the professional, the mid-level supervisor, and the paraprofessional or technician. And and that isn't explicitly in there, but I think it needs to be because, frankly, as a BCBA who's going to be leaving a supervisee in a home alone with just the mom and the child or the mom and the teenager, you need to have confidence that that person is going to do the right thing. And you need to actually take pause and say, is this adequately supervised? Have I been given enough supervisory hours? Health plans are constantly trying to reduce the amount of supervision and say yep. it's, you know, it's not enough or we're not going to pay for that much. And that works as long as it's not compromising care. But as the BCBA, right. you need to say, wait a sec, I can't ensure quality if I don't have enough supervision and I'm not willing to do it because I would be violating my ethical standards. And, you know, that's the purpose of a license is your license would then be at risk. You know, if a health plan says I'm not, I'm only going to authorize this and that's not safe or that's not effective. Mm -hmm. You need to have 
that extra level of, well, then I can't do it. You know, then we need to go back and say, we're going to need to renegotiate this because this is not ABA or this will not be quality. And my license is on the line because I do feel there's been this sort of struggle with where does the liability go? And the insurance company wants to push the liability to the provider and the provider, you know, it, it needs to be somewhere and it really, you know, it needs to be with the provider who's licensed and they need to have the power of the license behind them, you know, for if they're, Mm -hmm. if the health plan is asking them to do something that's not appropriate, that the licensing board can get behind them and say, you know, yeah, we can't have our, we can't have our staff do this. So you're going to have to figure out a way to, you know, come up with a different solution. Well, I think a big thing that I've, I've noticed and I think is going to be a struggle and is a struggle and will be a struggle is how do you define a provider? Um, California is different from a lot of different other states in the country is, you know, you don't see a lot of independent practitioners out here. You see organizations, group practices, and, you know, in, in the time that I've been a BCBA, I've noticed it feels like every year the BCBA in general takes less and less responsibility for they themselves as a, as a certified behavior analyst taking responsibility for their staff and programs and almost pushing it to the, the company or the group practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, it's AST's responsibility or it's you know, XYZ company's responsibility where it's, you know, is it the organization or is it the person? And I agree with you when you start to move to a license, you know, the licensed behavior analyst has to now be more accountable for their own actions uh, while still being accountable to the group practice. And and that is going to be an adjustment for us. But I think it's the right adjustment because frankly, as a health provider, the company also can't tell you to do something that's not clinically appropriate. Yeah. It has to be, this is healthcare. So the buck has to stop with the healthcare provider. And I don't yeah. mean the dollar yeah. buck, I mean the quality. Sure. Um, so I think it's the right direction to go. And, you know, to me, it's not surprising that we're going to group more group practices. I think probably the way the field is, because California has provided behavioral health treatment for so much longer in a substantial way than other states. Yeah. And a lot of the other states have new, um, you know, health, the, the other states have new health insurance mandates that are creating fields of providers and BCBAs where none existed because no behavioral health treatment was provided. And yeah. so it's not unusual to start with, very decentralized one-off mom and pop providers as there are just a few that sort of show up and the Mm -hmm. demand for services is growing at the same time as the supply of providers. Whereas in California, you know, we've been delivering it for 25 years. This is following much more of the other, you know, the model that you see going on in all of healthcare right now, which is huge consolidation, um, you know, which certainly has pros and cons. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. there's a size in between that I think is the right size where I think the mom and pop, you know, one-off individual providers, there's not necessarily the ability to do as much training or quality control because the systems, you can't afford the systems. When mm-hmm. it gets too big, 
you maybe really lose some of the personalization. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but healthcare is going that way. I mean, you see these huge group practices of pediatricians and internal medicine doctors and oncology doctors. Oh yeah, it, it's it's the it's the only way to survive. And so I think the the provider pool in California reflects you know where we are in the development of the the field. You know, mostly. I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I, I was at I was at my daughter's pediatrician appointment this morning and, you know, and I saw my doctor for, you know, he's a large group practice and he's great. And, he, you know, that five, 10 minutes I get with him is excellent and his staff is excellent. But it's, you know, I've got the nurse practitioners in there. I've got different people doing different things for us. And, you know, I, I think that that is where the nation is going. Um, and, and that's not automatically a bad thing because I think it, it does create some positives, as you, as you mentioned. I just wonder, and, and from my experiences of being in different states, it almost feels like, again, you know, you have this vacuum of a BCBA supervising a middle-tier BCABA supervising an RBT, and in theory, and in a vacuum, that all makes sense. But when I think about 20 years from now, where is the nation going to be? Does it look more like California and the idea of these group practices? And do we need to like design the regulatory pieces with that more in mind? And, and, and from my perspective, the bill as it stands now tends to lean too much to the independent practitioner and not looking at the group practice perspective, how services are mostly delivered. I mean, I can see them actually working together if the criteria were correct. So I think that what you're, I don't think the two concepts of the structure and the group practice are mutually Mm -hmm. exclusive. I think the challenge right now really lies in the middle tier and how the middle tier is defined because, you know, I think the challenge is that if, and this gets back to your original question about how does this sort of jibe with the reality of what's in practice. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you ask, I've done surveys of BCBAs and group practices in California, so have others. If you look at who makes up the middle tier on say the 9,000 regional center clients who are receiving behavioral health treatment, the middle tier is less than a half of a percent BCABAs. And yet the criteria for the middle tier in the licensing bill is a BCABA, which doesn't at all reflect how the field is actually delivered. It's the one that confuses me the most because Mm -hmm. it doesn't seem to serve either the professionals or the families because it, 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 I mean, it seems to really only serve the board. You know, if you look at the way the services are delivered, very, very few individuals have the BCABA. In California, there are approximately 2,500 to 3,000 BCBAs. And it's a pyramid. You know, there are then probably the need for, say, 10,000 middle-tier supervisors mm-hmm. and then, you know, substantially more 
frontline behavior technicians. And yet, for the BCBA license and BCABA license, you have 2,500 to 3,000 BCBAs and about 150 BCABAs, where you should have 10,000. So it's not not a, a meaningful designation because literally nobody's doing it. So to me, is you're actually, you're taking a criteria that is based on some theory, and I'm not saying it's not a good degree, but it's obviously, it's not something that people are making a career stop because you have 125 or, or 200 when you need 10,000. And so, and it's not how the field is delivered. So that that piece of the licensing bill that's proposed right now makes absolutely no sense because if you ask every BCBA who is running one of those group practices or is working for a group practice, they are not using BCABAs as their middle tier. They are using something different. So then we need to make the requirement for the middle tier match the requirements of what's actually being used, not the 0.5% theoretical put together in an ivory tower, but not being useful in right. practice. That, that's the wrong criteria for that tier. I never considered a BCABA. Personally, it, it just never made sense. It, it kind of felt like a waste of my time because I knew from day one I wanted to get a BCBA. And I think that's part of the problem is a lot of people are more like me who say, I'm going to do a two or three year master's program, get the studies, get the, the experience, get my BCBA, a pit stop for a year to become a BCABA didn't seem like a good use of my time and energy. It, it didn't necessarily feel like I was going to advance my career with that compared to the day-to-day experience I was getting uh, here at AST. Now, granted, this is like 06, 05, so it's, it was a different time, but it just – I think a lot of people, the reason we don't see more than 150 BCABAs is they all become BCBAs. And so I don't know right. if you can I mean, sustain it's, that pool. It's not something – it can't be unique to you because if you look at the numbers, the vast yeah. majority of Californians are following and making your choice, and they're not making the BCABA. And I don't want that to be confused with where some of the health plans went with SB 946 by misinterpreting the mid-level supervisory tier because that is an absolutely critical right. piece of actually delivering quality ABA and that in all the group practices it's just not delivered by a BC ABA it's delivered by you know what the regional centers call the behavior management I think it's assistant mm-hmm. um, or it's the behavior management associate one of one of them is the BCBA ABA and the other one is the one that basically everybody uses and yep. it has you know competency it has higher level training it has experience um and if you look at the BACB guidelines for when they describe how should ABA be delivered you know they talk about the model where the BCBA is at the top and then you have the mid-level supervisor and then you have the now they're calling it the RBT Mm -hmm. but the mid-level supervisor is a substantial part of the hours Because when you're only having two hours per 10 of case supervision from the BCBA and you have a 40-hour program that then 
the majority of the hours is being delivered by somebody with a high school diploma, you need eight to 10 hours a week of mid-level supervision to actually be making the small modifications and doing a lot of the overlap and supervision with the, the junior therapist. And that's the only way that you can actually have someone with a high school diploma delivering this really critical health care. So that piece, by defining it in a way that doesn't match the population that's actually serving and providing the services, is really at risk for making that whole middle tier go away. And then you're really taking out the essence of what makes ABA, ABA, or behavioral health treatment, behavioral health treatment. And you're ending up going to have somebody at the RBT level be able to provide quality care without both levels of supervision. And some of the health plans have done that very well. And others of the health plans have really tried to eliminate that middle tier. And it, it really jeopardizes the quality of the treatment. And it makes the small mom and pop provider or individual provider really at a disadvantage because if the health plan won't pay for it, but it still needs to happen, a large group practice generally still provides it and, you know, figures out a way to make up the cost in another way or eat some of the cost. A small provider really cannot do that. And so a lot of the smaller providers are forced to remove that middle level of supervision, which jeopardizes the care. We don't want to find that all the ABA that we're providing for the last three years is substantially less effective than the ABA we were providing when we were really providing real ABA with real middle tier supervision. Um, You know, when those studies come out, because the middle tier was misinterpreted by some, and that's why I would also want it brought back to the BCBA is in charge. And if that is jeopardizing the quality and the quality buck stops with the BCBA, then they need to stop that and say, I can't ethically deliver this without the middle tier. So, It's all very integrated, but it really does come back to the tiers need to be defined with competence standards, safety standards, but that are appropriate for the job that they're doing. And there's some definite holes right now. Um, And then it also needs to have the ability to take us from where we are today Mm -hmm. and bring us to where we want to go in the future without gaps in services for really anybody who's receiving care right now. And the vast majority of it is quality. So it's an excellent concept. It's a laudable goal. um, But there's a lot of details that need to be worked out before getting something that is actually going to move the field forward and increase the consumer protection, but not jeopardize significant care for many, many individuals. Yeah. And I mean, that's, and that becomes my concern. And I think you, you said it well, it's, you know, it feels like there's been a lot of conversation about where things are today. And I don't know if there's a really good conversation about where things will be. I mean, there's a whole host of other issues within this that, you know, we don't have time to go into, you know, beyond just the definition of the middle tier. I mean, there's, I, I've had questions and concerns about some of the student exemptions and how those are defined. And because I think what there's been moments where I've said, asked the question of different people and they're like, well, it's, it's in there, it's in there, you're fine. 
but there's not necessarily a good definition of what's in there. And if I take, as you said, if I as a licensed behavior analyst recognize that I myself am on the line for this, you know, I want to know what are the guidelines. I want to be clear on what my the expectations are because it gives me protection. It gives the consumer protection, but then it allows me to go back to a health plan, to a regional center, to whomever to help justify and support what it is I'm recommending, who I'm recommending to do services. And I worry that so far the dialogue seems to be so much about today and not 10 years from now, five years from now. Is this sustainable? Um, and, and can we actually accomplish any of these things that you know we've kind of laid out abstractly? Although I also think there's a big piece that's completely missing from the reality of today. Because I think there's another piece of it where they've said, well, this is where I want to be in 10 years. And I think Mm. what hasn't been done is, does this make sense for where we want to be in 10 years? And I think you and I are saying, you know, for example, with the middle tier, it doesn't make sense. That's not the right place that we want to be in 10 years. But that's not saying we're not thinking about 10 years. That's just saying we have it wrong for what we're looking at to be in 10 years. But we're not taking into consideration where we are. I mean, To me, that, you know, this bill at this point, the consumers will never be able to support it, at least all the, you know, significant groups that I represent, including the autism societies of various counties, plus the Autism Society of California and the Alliance of California Autism Organizations. Mm -hmm. We will not be able to support this bill until there is meaningful grandfathering for the current provider pool. We have to accommodate what we are doing today, and that's not being accommodated. And then we have to have the right plan for where we want to be in 10 years. But I don't want everybody who's providing excellent treatment now who has, frankly, many more experience, you know, many more years of great quality experience than they would get by going back and taking a course that wasn't even offered when they were in graduate school. And now we want them to go leave the field, go back, go back to school and then my therapist is now back at school instead of treating my child, you know, without a a grandfathering that really accommodates, and you can call it whatever you want, but it has to really accommodate the providers of today and how that they are going to be able to continue to deliver care, their game, have all the continuing education requirements, have all the ethical requirements, need to take the exam to show competence. I'm fine with all of that but I'm not fine with making them go back to school or making them go get someone with two years of experience to supervise them and say they're competent when they've been practicing for 20 years and have been supervising that person. You know, a a one-year or two-year BCBA is not more competent than someone with a master's in early childhood education who's been providing behavioral health treatment for 20 years. Um, yeah, I think so. You know, the problem. I mean, I know some of the people you're talking about, and you know, and and I'm and I'm trying to avoid some names just because yep. I think it's not about the person. I think it's about the concept that we're describing. Um, you know, and I think of a couple of people I've known for a long time who these people taught the people who taught me. You know, that's how mm-hmm. old school they are, and um, I and Lovas taught them. Right. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, you know exactly who I'm talking about. Um, And so I, 
you know, and I think to myself, okay, this is great. Um, you know, but I, I get the other point of view here of, you know, how do you do this in such a way to make sure we don't open up the door to like everybody. And it's, you know, I agree. Like I, I don't want to stand in the way of any good people who have been providing services for 20, 30, you know, in some cases getting close to 40 years. You don't want to get in the way of that. Um, but as you said, it feels like this is a conversation of, well, how could we do this to prevent the fears of people while still doing right by these good professionals and the families who are getting their great services? That, that dialogue doesn't, to my knowledge, seem to be happening. Right. We keep trying to raise that dialogue. I and I will say that the author's offices have been quite open to sharing and having that dialogue. And so yeah. has the Board of Psychology has been a little slower to come around. But, sure. you know, I had some encouraging conversations with them after this last effort where they really, I think they had been convinced by the BACD that there really was an alternative and when they did their own independent research, they came back to me and they said, you know, it does not appear that there is an alternative. So we feel like there really does need to be an alternative. And they're thinking about, well, what would they want it to be? Yeah. Uh, but those conversations are starting to happen, but not with the bill sponsor. That's still being said that that's yeah. sort of completely off limits. Then we're really at a, a pretty significant impasse because yeah. we, you know, the other, you know, without naming names, there's, I mean, BCBA programs are excellent, but we also have great PhD programs at major UC universities, UCLA, UC Santa Barbara, UC San Diego, and the the people who run those programs and who are, you know, truly the thought leaders and the publishers and, you know, design the curriculum, you know, mm -hmm. the deans of the programs, they don't have BCBAs, they have PhDs, and none of the graduates from those programs are eligible to sit for the BCBA unless they hired a BCBA to, who has two years of experience to supervise them, but they're not getting supervised from, you know, the dean of the university um, in, you know, some of the most excellent university programs that we have right. in the state. And, you know, each of those programs has graduated a couple hundred PhDs over the years. How can we possibly say that graduates from, you know, PhD graduates from UCLA, UC Santa Barbara, and UC San Diego have to go back to school or go get their um, supervision redone when they're supervising you know, the next level of PhD students. Right. And we say we want them to sit for an exam. They're willing to sit for an exam, but we're not willing to provide them an exam to sit for. So you can't have a catch-22 and say you have to take an exam, but you're not allowed to sit for the exam. You either need to say you don't need an exam because you've been practicing for over 10 years and you're, you know, supervising PhD students, or you need to sit for an exam and here's one. But right now... They say you need to sit for an exam, but you're not allowed to sit for the exam. And, right. and that, you know, that doesn't work. That's a catch-22 that nobody can accommodate. I, I totally agree with you. And, and I, you know, I kind of chuckle because uh, the universities you've mentioned, you know, I remember sitting in my graduate coursework getting to sit ultimately for the exam and the articles that we're reading, the research that we're reviewing a lot of it came from those programs, from the people that you're talking about. So it's, it, it's a very, um, 
it's a very interesting uh, situation. And, you know, there's times where it just strikes me as, is this really just about control? Like who really controls the field of behavior analysts? It's a very valid point. I mean, I, but protecting right. the practice is not what licensure is supposed to be about. Licensure is about consumer protection. It's not about protecting the practice, which is probably why most of the licensing boards or all of the licensing boards don't have a majority of the people right. being licensed on them because it's about consumer protection, not about protecting your field. And I think that's a big confusion that, that the sponsors of the bills and the, the associations seem to have that is, mm-hmm. that is frankly concerning. Yeah. You had asked earlier about the complaint. I don't know if you wanted yeah. me to briefly yeah, sure. answer that, but I do have some comments on that. Um, I think that your your question about the complaint process and do consumers know where to go and is there a, um, would, is there a sort of meaningful way to get complaints and disciplinary action against um, BCBAs, I, I think – it's a valid concern. I think there are shortcomings in it right now. My understanding is that at about half of the complaints are more about copyright protection of using the BACB logo than they are about complaints from consumers about the practice of ABA or behavioral health treatment. And I don't think, because it's not a state board and it's a national board, I just think that that makes it more challenging for consumers um, to know where to go. Like, I don't know where to go. I've never been provided any information from anybody that if I had a problem with the BCBA running my case, this is where I would file a complaint. Um, So there's something that's not working in the requirements because I know that they have complaint processes and they have ethical requirements, but there's nothing in the requirements that makes me as a consumer of services or my child as a consumer of services, receive any information about how one might go about registering the complaint. I mean, I can complain to the group practice agency, but that that is completely different than being able to put in a complaint against somebody's license. And we have used that, you know, when we have some health plans with doctors that are seem much more beholden to the health plan and are not being allowed to use their own clinical judgment. You know, one of the resources that consumers have is filing complaints against the actual doctors for setting aside their medical ethics and following what, you know, their suits are telling them to do. And we've had to use that in in certain circumstances. And there isn't really that ability. So um, I think having a a complaint process that's run by the state. If you look at most of the licensing laws, um, they have, you know, they have significant protections both for the consumer and for the BCBA because you guys also have to be protected against frivolous complaints for someone who's just mad that their child has autism and didn't get better. And it has nothing to do with any real legitimate concern. So, you know, the complicated detailed complaint procedures are in place very similarly for all the licensing boards. And I think, you know, those work. And we should have something for this field that basically mirrors what we have for the other health fields. And that is something that we can and should be able to get with a license. Um, And also, it needs to be all the way down 
for the different tiers. It's not, you do need to be able to put in a complaint, not just about the BCBA, but, you know, there may be a behavior technician who, and that you also want to put in a complaint specifically about that person. And Mm -hmm. I know that some of the BCBAs um, and, or some of the agencies, you know, really don't want to have the registered technician um, or the technician registered. Um, But I think from a consumer standpoint, we really do want them registered. And while what they do with the non-public agencies through the school districts, it, it does work. It, It works retroactively. So the list of staff members are provided at the end of the year, but there's not an ongoing active list of who is currently providing treatment. So, there, and there's not a searchable database that I as a consumer can go to because basically at the end of the year, everybody provides who was my staff for that year. And, you know, but it's too late if I wanted to make a complaint of something that happened, say, in March, because that information of isn't even to the regulator until December or January, and it never makes it to the consumer. So I actually, the consumers really do support having the behavior technicians registered. And what we need to figure out is what is appropriate. I don't know actually that this group needs to sit for an exam, maybe an ethics exam, but I'm not, you know, 40 hours of training is nothing compared to what their on the job, on the job training, on the job supervision is. And so what they're going to show me after a test, after 40 hours of training is going to be almost nothing. So I don't know that having a test for test sake makes sense. Um, but having, that's another part of why they, you know, having the BCBA be responsible for that the competency training has been done, that the ongoing supervision is being done, that the technician is being adequately supervised for every case that they are working on. You know, that's what needs to be done for that level. And then, and then ensure that the minimum level of training has been done, um, And I do respect that it's a challenge to have these same agencies have to train and use staff for the school district, which has one criteria and licensing, and then for insurance, which would have another, this potentially new license. That is challenging. Um, And I understand the duplication, but there has to be some way to have some creative solutions that doesn't really double the burden on the provider and therefore the expense, but at the same time has something that's meaningful in terms of having a database of every person that a consumer can search and make, you know, understand either file a complaint or see if there have been complaints filed against them and have all those protections for any of the, you know, potentially not appropriate complaints or the, you know, Mm -hmm. times when the um, professional is exonerated, that that process exists. But I, I think that's something that is definitely lacking today and is a real potential benefit of the right licensure bill. I mean, in yeah, the I, end, I really feel like the licensure bill should be a consumer bill. This should be a bill that's driven first and foremost for consumer protection because that's what it's about. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, and I think, you know, it, you know, with all that you were talking about within the direct line tech you know, conceptually, I'm with you, and and I, to me, I feel about that issue very similarly to the way you talk about the the middle tier. Is 
it, it all comes down to execution. I mean, it's I've seen it executed very well in other states, and I've seen it executed very poorly where it's so rigid that it actually leads to gaps in services and there's been issues. You know, it, it doesn't have to be this negative thing Um and it doesn't necessarily, as a provider who has a lot of different techs working for me, it doesn't necessarily need to be this, like, I have to redo all of my training to do something for a school and then something for this new licensure with insurance. I think there is a way to embed it all. It just needs to be done in kind of like a thoughtful fashion. Um, right. And we might need to take more time to make sure it's done right. Yeah. Because, as I said, it's not an emergency. We have a system that is, for the most part, working. So let's not do anything that might potentially right. blow up the provider pool that we have. Let's really do this right. And, uh, and, yeah, and within that, I think the, a point that I think gets missed, which I think every provider who is of any size, you know, I, I mean, and I'm not talking, you know, the largest providers, I mean, of just 20 employees, California has some of the strictest labor laws in the, in the country, if not the strictest. And I think sometimes people need to recognize, like, when that has to factor into how I go about doing things. Um, yep. Because what I'm required to pay for, what the employee is required to pay for, um, how, what information can be shared with whom from an HR perspective. I often find that these issues kind of get glossed over. Um, and, you know, we need to be recognizing that we live in the state of California with these other laws that need to be taken into consideration when you put the, these processes into place. Right. And this is a position that is already very hard to recruit for and very mm-hmm. hard to retain because it's, you know, it's not necessarily viewed as a career. It doesn't necessarily pay more than, you know, going to work at, you know, some other kind of a job that's much less stressful, um, you know, because you're not, you know, you're not working with a developmentally disabled individual and you can get paid more. And um, so we, we need to have competence, but we can't make the requirements so strict that we push away people from wanting to join this field. I mean, this is a really critical field and, you know, the population is growing. It's not shrinking. And, you know, they're already pretty significant waiting list in a lot of areas just to get treatment at all. So, you know, we need to make sure that we're not designing this license from an ivory tower that is Mm -hmm. perfectly theoretical but has no basis in reality, and we end up with no providers to provide this critical care that we have fought long and hard to get. I mean, this was not easy to get. This has been a many, many year battle. We've been working on this since 2006 in a, you know, pretty significant fashion. And it's 2015. I mean, that's nine years later. And we've really made some great gains. I mean, particularly with the Medi-Cal adding the benefit. I mean, that, that gets access to half the state, but that also substantially is going to increase the demand for services. That's a group that was not previously being served. Um, and so we have to be thoughtful about raising standards, but raising standards over time and capturing where we are today and accommodating our current provider field 
for our current individuals who are getting treatment and also right. being able to accommodate thousands of new individuals who have access to treatment. I mean, the Medi-Cal benefit has been its an excellent step forward. I mean, it's a, it's a truly huge step forward. And, you know, close to 3,000 kids have gotten services. But, you know, the estimates were that there are probably 75,000 kids under the age of 21 who are Medi-Cal beneficiaries. They may not all mm-hmm. need treatment, but 3,000 is an incredibly low penetration of that. And so, you know, there are still many, many hurdles that are in place to try to, you know, actually get that care through access to the, the benefit that is now in place. Yeah, definitely. Well, you and I have been going on and on for a while, and I know we both feel so passionately about this. We could go for another hour. Um, but uh, I think this is a good place for us to kind of pause and give everyone who's been listening some time to really digest all of this. Uh, so thank you so much for being here, for talking this through with us. Uh, you know, like I said, I, I – I wanted to talk about why this is important to parents out there because I think there's been a lot of kind of glossing over of the parent perspective um, and maybe not uh, acknowledgement as to why this is such a big parent issue. Um, If there's parents out there who are listening, who are curious, who say like, hey, I want to know more about this, is there any place, resource, anything for them to go to to get more information as to what's been going on? Um. There is not a lot of printed material that I've seen on this. I mean, certainly you can go to legginfo.ca.gov and look up the bill, and then you can also look at the position papers that a lot of the consumer organizations have written, which at least highlight a good number of our issues. Um, You know, when, when something is going through the legislature and is going through the committees, um, Different organizations have an opportunity to put in support letters, concern letters, oppose letters. And so some of, um, you know, the, the consumer organizations have put letters in, and at least, you know, that could be something that someone could sit down and read. And, you know, if you go through the ledge info, and I don't remember the bill number, I think it's maybe SB 479, but I think the bill number might be completely changing because they're, they're having to get a new author and reintroduce it, but um, right. the the at least the content and the analysis of the bill by the policy committees um, is available on the web at the Ledge Info site, and it would be available under the the old bill number, um, and it was a bill by Senator Bates, Patricia Bates. So I would at least say somebody could go there. You could potentially have them send an email to info at autismdeserveequalcoverage.com um, if they have trouble. Or maybe I could actually give you the link um, and you could link on your podcast to where they can go and get the bill analysis and the, the letters of, you know, mostly concern. I mean, I think the other thing we didn't talk about is, um, you know, the Association for Regional Center Agencies, ARCA, which is the big um, – you know, trade association for the regional centers, they came out with a, you know, position of significant concern. And they were concerned for the individuals that 
they are currently serving that are transitioning, mm-hmm. knowing that their provider pool have you know don't meet the same criterion as are in this licensing bill, and they are worried that their kids are going to have gaps in services and not be able to transition. So, yeah. you know, it's not just the consumers that are having concerns with this bill. There was also a whole group of providers that had concerns with the bill who were all run by BCBAs, and then the the Association of Regional Center Agencies, you know, they're representing consumers, but they're also representing, um, you know, their their state advocates. And while there's an exemption for their services, the model is changing. And these 9,000 kids, you know, probably 9,000 of the 13,000 kids that get ABA or, you know, individuals, because all the kids are going to be transitioning to health plans. So an exemption for a regional center that's no longer providing the care doesn't work. You know, so they were potentially suggesting an exemption for anybody who's serving a child who's eligible for a regional center. But, you know, those are the most vulnerable people that you have in the population. As a consumer representative, I don't want anybody who's treating a kid with autism exempt from whatever requirements are put in place because they're no longer going to be under the purview of the regional center. So the regional center won't be monitoring the care and they would be exempt from the licensing law that the insurance company has. So then I don't, I feel like that's a really tough situation. Um, You know, but the bill sponsors were more open to an enormous exemption for regional centers than they were to a grandfathering to at least get all the people who, treat the regional center under the license and under the regulatory oversight that the board of psychology would approve or, you know, would uh, maintain. So I think I, that was not quite the answer to the original question, but it was something that, that I didn't remember to talk about. And the only last thing I just wanted to say is while the timing on the licensure is not essential there is something that is really critical for 2016 that has to happen, which is that the original autism health insurance law, SB 946, which is Health and Safety Code 1374.73, mm-hmm. and then there's a matching insurance code. Yeah. That is due to sunset in January of 2017. So it must be renewed in January of 2016 sorry, it must be renewed during 2016 Mm -hmm. so that the current licensing scheme that we have that has been working that all the health plans, the private health plans are following is continued. So if there is something that's totally critical for the autism community to focus on in 2016 and all the providers and, frankly, the health plans, it's to make sure that that bill has the sunset removed, the cost question on the Affordable Care Act of would the state be left holding the bag for something that exceeded the essential health benefits is completely moot. That was the only reason we ever had a sunset on that bill. We now know the feds have weighed in twice and said we are keeping this schema, whereas as long as it is in the covered California benefit plan, which it is, then the state is not financially on the hook. That's should be all we need to remove that um, that sunset, and it's in everybody's interest because now the health plans are footing 
that bill. And, you know, there was an $80 million a year saving, general fund savings to the regional center. So from a budget standpoint, mm-hmm. we don't want $80 million in the general fund have to be put back in to have regional centers end up paying for this treatment again now right. that we actually have successfully transitioned it to insurance. So that is something that is critical that people really do need to um, be engaged in and on the lookout for, and that'll be, sure. I'll, I'll definitely be talking a lot about that in 2016. Okay. Yeah, we should definitely talk more about that um, as we get going. I know it's, as you said, I mean, I'm part of one of the groups that you described who's getting involved in these issues, and uh, I know it's something we're, we're looking at as well because it's, uh, it's very easy to get distracted by uh, the licensure issue or the Medi-Cal piece and forget about the sunset clause. So I, I agree. Right, and there's also, there are some small technical issues that yeah. are in the bill just that need to be cleaned up. Um, you know, the middle tier is interpreted differently by mm-hmm. Pfizer and Magellan, and it needs to be clear that the middle tier can supervise, and it needs to be clear that the employer might be the group practice. It might not be the BCBA. The, the technician does not work mm-hmm. for you. They work for AST, so you need to be employed by the same agency. So they're just, there are right. some cleanup language that everyone is sort of following because they know what it's supposed to say and it's supposed mm-hmm. to mean, but it's, it would be important to actually make it actually say that so that there's not any, you know, especially on the area with the middle tier being allowed to supervise, that's the entire model. And as the regional center kids move over, that's the model that's, that's transitioning. And we need to get the health plans all on the same page instead of on different pages about what that middle tier is intended to do to actually be ABA. But again, that's well, definitely probably a conversation for another day. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, Whenever this, we finish, just, we always come up with something else we want to talk about. Exactly. Exactly. Well, it's just more of a reason for us to connect again and, and do this again. That sounds great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Um, um, well, thanks everybody for being here today. I'm, I'm really I'm glad we were able to finish up this conversation with Kristen. Um, When she was here a few months ago and we started talking about Medi-Cal, it felt really important that we we jump into this licensure argument or or discussion Uh, because, you know, I think her and I actually um, have really seen eye to eye on a lot of different things. Um, You know, it's as we've been going deeper and deeper into the conversation about licensure, you know, I know some of my assumptions, some of the things that I had thought of at first about, you know, licensure being something that increases access to services for people um, has been tested, you know, and, and I've had to kind of come and confront certain, you know, notions I had in my head um, and in some cases some misconceptions about, you know, really what is this all about. Um, so I'm glad that Kristen is getting, you know, parents involved because it. It seems like a, a professional type of issue at first, but in, in speaking to a lot of my friends in other states who do have licensure laws, you know, this is about parents first and foremost. And um, it, I've seen, you know, and, and heard from them the difference of parents being involved in the licensure laws versus parents kind of finding out about them after the fact. So hope this was really a, a different perspective for you and, and something that you guys could all kind of take and apply, um, not just to what's going to happen in the future, but into how your services are being delivered today. 
Hope you guys have a fabulous week, fabulous weekend, and we'll talk to you next time. Take care. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. For additional information and resources about autism, visit www.learnitsystems.org backslash family. Know an inspiring group or individual we should talk to? We would love to hear more from you at more info at autismtherapies.com. Want to hear more? Listen to previous episodes at www.allautismtalk.com. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.